One of the most important parts of naming your new business is finding a website name that works. Today's episode is brought to you by .ca. Join thousands of Canadian entrepreneurs who have chosen .ca as the trusted online home for their business. Visit cira.ca forward slash startup today. Disruption, investment, work-life balance. Delving deep on the topics that matter most for entrepreneurs. He's Rivers Corbett on the Startup Canada Podcast Network. All right, everybody. Welcome to Startup Canada Podcast Show. I'm your host, Rivers Corbett. The Startup Canada Podcast is a production of Startup Canada, a grassroots entrepreneur-led movement to bring together, celebrate, and give a voice to Canada's entrepreneurship community. And on the podcast, we speak with the movers and the shakers. And you're going to enjoy this conversation I'm going to get into of Canada's entrepreneurship community and explore themes in entrepreneurship, startups, investment, innovation, and impact. The podcast is brought to you by Intuit QuickBooks, your partner in starting and growing a financially fit and fundable business. Check out startupcan.ca backslash finance to sign up for a startup finance bootcamp near you and to get 50% off QuickBooks online for your business. And tonight, today, we're really fortunate to have in the spotlight life, John Ruffalo, Ruffalo, sorry, John, the Chief Executive Officer of Omer's Ventures and the Executive Managing Director of Omer's Strategic Investment. Omer's Ventures invests in early to late stage companies, companies in tech, media, and telecommunication sectors, and was recently dubbed by Bloomberg Business as the savior to Canada's startups. It's going to be a great conversation. John also serves as a board member of the Next Big Thing Foundation, which is a nonprofit founded by Hootsuite's Ryan Holmes, and he also sits on Ryan's board at Hootsuite's. And uh, also, unsurprisingly, in 2014, Canadian business crowned John as Canada's most powerful business person. Wow, John, thank you. It's so great to have you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on this. Thank you. Well, we've got a lot of ground to, ga- uh, to gather today and cover today, so let's get right at it. And it really starts with uh, uh, venture capitalism and your journey of the how and the why. Why did uh, why did that all start, and how did it all start? Sure, it's uh, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll give you the uh, abbreviated <laughs> yeah, uh, <right>. version. Wonderful. <laughs> I, I've I spent uh, prior to uh, building Omer's Ventures, I spent twenty years uh, being an advisor to technology companies uh, in Canada and abroad, right from early stage startups right to large uh, companies. And one of the areas that I had a particular passion around was the early stage companies that really required venture capital financing. Right. And as uh, Canada kind of went through the nuclear winter for about 10 years after the post.com <laughs> uh, bust, yeah. um, and, 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 and further heightened by the 2008 financial crisis, I really uh, started uh, aggressively pointing out those traditional sources of, of capital uh, as not doing uh, their job to to help the Canadian economy and actually make a lot of money. And uh, the CEO of Omers in 2010 
uh, contacted me to help them uh, build a new um, venture arm, which I found I was actually shocked that they were going to do it. And they um, contacted me in an advisory role, but but really what the truth was, uh, they wanted me to actually build it. And I remember the uh, CEO of Omers at the time saying, you know, you've been poking at us really hard. And so you think you're so smart, you do it. You know, my, my response is, hey, you know, I'm, I just like pointing out and advising, not actually doing it. So I felt that uh, I needed to put my money where my mouth was right and actually on. leave my job to do it. So that's, uh, that's how it all got started. You put your yep. foot in your mouth. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> lesson learned, just shut up a few times. <laughs> but let me ask you this question. Have you learned how to shut up? I don't think so. I think you're, you're a pretty pretty uh, vocal guy when it comes to things that are important to you. So that's really cool. So, so uh, one of the things that we haven't talked about in my conversation with my guests is about pitches. And yep. uh, what I'm interested, what's and I'm not going to ask you for the most memorable one, but what was one memorable one uh, that someone made to you? And did it end up being a successful pitch in the long run? Sure. Uh, you know, I actually have, a, I have a, a couple of memorable ones but okay. for very, very different reasons. Okay. The best pitch that I've ever seen uh, in my career um, was a, uh, a, a Silicon Valley based opportunity. Uh, the CEO uh, uh, is David Goldberg. And unfortunately, he just passed away. He mm. was the spouse of uh, Sheryl Sandberg from, from Facebook. Okay. Uh, this guy uh, not only, you know, is an amazing CEO, he uh, was pitching us for a large investment in SurveyMonkey. And his pitch lasted about two and a half hours. And he kind of he kind of tranched the pitch. But <laughs> what he did, he was unbelievably transparent. And he has this he had this quiet confidence about him that basically said, look, I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to tell you the positives and the negatives and why you should invest or why you shouldn't invest. And by the end of the two and a half hours, he asked any questions. And I just remember being speechless saying, I don't have a single question. And uh, we, we decided not to make the investment largely because uh, it would have been greater than the entire size of the entire fund. Um, and it turned out to be a spectacular uh, investment. And once again, you know, unfortunately, he had passed away unexpectedly. Right. The, the, the second one that was memorable for a very, very different reason was um, a, uh, a gentleman – saw me on a, a television newscast and contacted me the next day asking me to invest in his business. And, uh, and I said, okay, so what, what's, what's your business? And it's, he said it was rice balls. <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah. And, he, and in Italian is called Arancini. Right. And uh, he said, you know, do you know what Arancini is? And I said, yeah, you know, I am Italian. I said, there's this place in Toronto that has the best. And it ended up being that that restaurant wanted to put into production uh, a uh, rice ball manufacturing facility. And now it, it was not a technology opportunity. So we passed. But, uh, you know, it was just kind of funny uh, when we got that. And uh, 
uh, lo and behold, about six months later, uh, Pizza Pizza introduced nationally uh, rice balls into their menu. So yeah, of course. Go, go, go figure. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the guy from uh, that was involved with Apple. And I read that Steve Jobs story about how he sold his shares for a thousand bucks or something. Right. Just yes, to get yes. out of it. Eh? Just to get out. Yes, <laughs> Just yeah. to get it. Wow. Well, John, based on your experience watching so many companies struggle to achieve that commercial success, and you know, we've heard the stats of eight out of 10, if it's true or not, what are the what are the two things that are the most important to you that entrepreneurs can do to increase their uh, their success rate? Well, the the two things uh, that I think is you know n- the number one, and this is what I look for when making an investment. I really try to see what is motivating this individual to build this company, mm-hmm. and really what is the underlying passion. Is the passion to you know make a lot of money? Is the passion to be well known, or is the passion? a gut-wrenching problem that this person has been trying to deal with for many, many years and will go through anything and will be pivoting or will be climbing through walls in order to actually solve this problem if it kills them. And, you know, that is one thing that 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 I look for, particularly when, I, when uh, someone's pitching me. And if the entrepreneur doesn't really have passion for that particular solution, I, I, my my suggestion would be, you know, you really need to think to yourself to to really understand whether you want to do uh, and build uh, a startup. A startup is a very very lonely place to be most of the time. It's very much sexed up in the media, but you know the reality is it's it is a big grind. It's very very difficult. And if, if, if you're not passionate about that problem, uh, you, know, you might just have a lot of uh, uh, years spent that, that, that go wasted. The, the, uh, if I could just stop yeah, you there sure. for a second, John, how do you how do you tell that? I mean, how do you how do you tell if someone's faking it? You know, okay, I want the money, I'll, I'll act passionate, but how do you look through that to say he's not really passionate? So you start to look at how did you get there? Like, how did you get to this idea and they usually tell you a story mm-hmm. and and they'll and, and it's usually a very personal story so if it's in the healthcare space oh you know my my father or my mother had uh, had cancer and i swore i was going to you know have an app to 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 uh, identify it earlier it's that very very personal story the way to tell is uh, in some cases, somebody will say, "You know, we have this great idea." And well, okay, how, how did you how did you think of this? Well, mm. I looked at the marketplace. There was no competition here, or there was these competitors, but they weren't making enough money. And I think I can come in and disintermediate them. Okay, so what's in your background to say that why you're going to win? Well, you know, I I, I have a great idea, and it, it's. Uh, you know, in those two examples, I could really tell and you're not perfect in in the diagnosis. But when I look at our best performing portfolio companies, they all started with the story that really, really bothered them. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and I'm sure practice makes perfect after a while, too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, John, I, I when I saw this question. 
on on the the research that uh, the great folks at Startup Canada have done, I said I can't wait to ask this question. And this is the question. It says that you, John Ruffalo, has said in recent months the tech bubble is about to burst. I want to know why. And then after you tell me why, what stocks are going to work well and where should I put my money? <laughs> I'll take the first answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll probably answer half of that question. Okay. So uh, I'll stay away from uh, money. Yeah, more specifically, you know, there is lots and lots of talk. Are we in a bubble? Are we not? I actually think it's the wrong question to ask. Okay. Because when you actually look at the classic definition of what a bubble is, uh, you're really looking at inflated valuations right through the entire ecosystem from private to 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 uh, public equities. Mm. And it's a, a complete mm. overinflation of the entire industry. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're seeing. But what we are seeing is we're seeing stress points in certain areas. And you're actually not seeing them in the public markets. I mean, there are some exceptions in there, but I would I would make a general statement saying that the public markets are valuing technology companies relatively rationally. Where it's not rational is in the private markets. And the most acute area is in the late stage private markets. And once again, it's a very polarizing uh, uh, difference. The the top 1% of the opportunities that, again, get the most buzz, um, valuations are so stratospheric that no matter what model that you'd really try to come up with, it's very, very difficult to, to justify those valuations. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the psychological fear of missing out is, is becoming mm-hmm. pervasive. Mm-hmm. And the and, and, and there's a number of reasons for that. You got a lot of the traditional public investors not having enough product to invest in. They're coming in a little bit earlier in the private sector, et cetera. But what starts to happen is by virtue of that you know, relatively narrow phenomenon, you start getting inflation pressure that broadens out not only in that same later stage area, but it starts to inflate the numbers all the way down to the seed levels. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing rapid valuation uh, inflation, uh, you know, frankly, beyond the size of the growth of the markets, not to suggest that Technology is not hot, and I, I know I'm extremely optimistic about it. Mm-hmm. But there is so much capital, and with low interest rates around the world, a lot of people who otherwise would not be coming into the asset class are coming in and chasing some of these mm. sexy, you know, high returns that they're hearing about, and that's usually the the warning signs before mm-hmm. once the pin bursts it explodes and the the uh, the viral effect that occurs uh, where people start rushing out out of panic starts to happen so you know my my words are I am optimistic but a number of these companies on the valuations I think are completely unsustainable. So you better be disciplined in what you're doing and be very, very careful where you invest. Yeah, very interesting. You know, when you're talking to me about the the emotional uh, chase, 
I, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, this has got nothing to do with startups, more curiosity. Um, would you think that a large portion of that would be people who got really hurt in the last fall and who are at retirement stage and are just trying to do anything to catch up to that lifestyle they lost? Yeah, no, that's, see, that's exactly where we get very concerned. I personally get concerned. Now, the good news is, you know, I represent the uh, the workers of Ontario from a retirement perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're entrusted with their dollars and, and protecting their retirement. And we're extremely careful that we don't get emotional. Mm-hmm. So we hope that we replace those emotions. But exactly what you described Every time that there is a meltdown, whether it's the 2008 financial crisis, dot-com bust, etc., it's the retail investor that gets killed. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a fascinating debate a couple of weeks ago um, on CNBC, was it CNBC, I think it was, with Carl Icahn and um, is it Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock. Mm -hmm. And Carl was just poking BlackRock in that... They now hold something like one and a half trillion dollars in bonds, and most of the holders are retail investors. And and uh, Carl was pointing out that you know rates are at you know an all time low, but the rates will move, and the Fed has indicated a movement of the rates sometime in the fall. When that happens, you lose a lot of money on bonds, mm-hmm. but you lose it algorithmically. And people don't understand it, and they think it's it's almost like a GIC. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, somebody puts their money in a five percent earning bond, and then they lose thirty percent, and they're scratching their heads. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, it happens because if the interest rates move by say you know one hundred basis points, uh, you've got a correction of one fifth or approximately twenty percent of your of your value has in essence evaporated. Mm-hmm. So those are the sorts of things that that get me worried. Sure. And and you know continue to get me worried uh, when uh, when asset values start to get distorted from reality. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that segue. It's just a, a, a point of interest. So thank you for going down that uh, that rabbit hole with me. There was a lot of observers that predicted a, a wave of new IPOs for Canadian technology firms. Uh, is that another potential emotional chase or do you see that happening? What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I would say... You know, for for a number of years, the the strongly held view is that it's far better to remain private, and it's better to exit out from an M and A perspective rather than an IPO. And and you know, g- you know, generally speaking, you know that that's actually accurate. However, uh, I think the distaste to be a public company has been a bit of a uh, of an overreaction and the problem with an M&A is you know you know the moment the M&A occurs usually the acquirer is in the US and usually they strip out mm-hmm. almost everything out of Canada so our ability to con- to continue to build an ecosystem actually gets hurt generally speaking in an M&A mm. so i'm very very pleased that the IPO alternative is is kind of back on the plate for a lot of these founders again yeah very cool 
Very, very cool. Well, look, let's talk a little bit about the world's startup ecosystem. And, uh, you know, when you look at uh, Canada or Compass recent ranking of the world's startup ecosystems, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, each in the top 20, but none of them stuck in the top 15. And one thing that uh, we think it is anyway, is the lack of availability of funding and therefore many entrepreneurs looking south of the border. Um, is, is that true? And if it's true, and uh, will uh, will that ever change? Well, the the study that you're referring to just recently came out. Uh, it was done by Compass. It's actually a, a very good um, study, and it it was an update of a study that was done three years ago. So those same three cities were in the top fifteen, and if I recall, I think Toronto was number nine. And okay. Vancouver was 10 and Waterloo, I want to say was 19 or something like that. What they actually did is they rejigged the criteria Mm -hmm. and they reweighted them such that uh, they were looking for exits uh, in those cities, large exits. And the reality is the Canadian startup scene has really been rejuvenated starting around 2011. So the time frame to start to see some of those exits really hasn't materialized. Right. So because they changed that weighting, those cities just dropped right. down. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my, my view is if you're on that list of the top 20, and I think Waterloo was just, just outside of the top 20, uh, uh, but basically what it's saying is that those 20 cities, they were they were probably pretty close to being actually the top 20 cities. And we've got uh, four cities basically in the top 20 yeah. in the world. Right. M- my view is that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, right on. Love it. Love it. You know, I guess just like a government, you can manipulate the look of a budget any way you want in the absolutely. numbers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I was thrilled by it. Yeah, very cool. And thank you for that for that honest insight with uh, with no uh, no connections to personal uh, advantage to it. So cool stuff. Let's kind of talk about government for a second. You know, what role do you think they should be playing? Not talk about what they're what you know what role they are playing and. And, um, uh, you know, I look at the federal election coming on. What should politicians be doing to get that entrepreneur vote? Sure. Um, You know, and I I preface my comments by saying, you know, I am a staunch believer in capitalism. And and when I say that, I, I believe that the role of government should basically be to stay out of the private affairs of business. But... Uh, make sure that the conditions for those businesses to thrive are are as ripe as possible. So let me give you an analogy. Okay. You know, uh, let's use a, a farmer's field. The role of government should be to help identify where the, you know, the, the, the actual field to plow the field, to fertilize it, um, you know, and, and and to you know remove some weeds out of the field, so the weeds would be the equivalent of red tape, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then allow the private sector to select the seeds that actually grow in those fields. Do not have the government, in, in essence, pick winners or losers. It's difficult enough for the private sector to do that. 
what it does, it creates distortions in the economy and it's hard then when somebody's picking winners or losers that are actually not the right winners or losers, it actually is very counterproductive. Mm. And so view the entrepreneur as the planter of the seed and they're growing their their vegetables and the role of venture capital is the water and it's just creating the fuel for growth. When you have it operating like that, then I think that's the ideal situation. So going back to your question then, you know, in the analogy of government, don't don't use taxpayer money to, to place bets, et cetera. But what we need for you to do is to do things where private sector cannot deal with. So for example, uh, one of Canada's great resources is human resources and immigration. Have the best immigration policies. Yeah, yeah. Really fast track it. Get rid of the red tape. Have the best educational uh, uh, policies. Keep taxation relatively low and particularly lower than the U.S. And if you're going to use the taxation system to incent some things, you could incent them on an industry-wide basis. So, so for example, they have the research and development tax credit that's helping spur growth of very, very early stage companies. That's okay, but don't pick, you know, uh, you know, we should do semiconductors versus, uh, you know, medical instruments or, or, or what have you. Yeah, very interesting. Well, it's a it is, as you're going through this this such a such a simple solution of, of of be a helper, don't be a hindrance. You know, my head just goes, well, that's pretty simple. Why doesn't that happen? And then I'm like, oh yes, this is a political system we're talking about here, and it's about getting votes. Yes, no, and 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 you know, the conundrum that I always run into, I, and and I get it, and in fact. A lot of the government folks are acting very logically. Today's votes tend to be in the old economy industries. This is why we see bailouts, for example, that are absolutely monstrous in the automotive sector Mm -hmm. because so many jobs, and I don't know what the exact stat is, but it's something like one out of every nine jobs are directly or indirectly correlated to the auto sector in in Ontario. And and maybe it's even more than that. But the question to ask, is that a sector that we're going to keep on having to do that? Have we already lost it? And then there are sectors where we are a player, you know, like innovation. And yet we don't do the same thing on the innovation side. So, so that's where the future votes might be. But the problem is that's not what gets you voted in today. And that's part of the conundrum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's part of the, uh, you know, we always talk about entrepreneurship is, is part of it is educating the population uh, in general, not just the ecosystem that, uh, that wants to be in it. And then you can start to make real change because then people will push for that change versus, versus not pushing for it. And uh, that's when the politicians will respond. So, um, John, we're, at the end of this interview, and uh, and I have really enjoyed the insights you've given. And do you have any final thoughts or advice for entrepreneurs that are seeking investments or or any avenues of funding? Sure. Yeah. You know the 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 the, the final comment is 
you know, we are seeing something happen in this country, which is remarkable. And I haven't seen this, you know, the through my you know last 30 years or so. We're seeing the rise of the entrepreneur mm-hmm. in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's quite remarkable in that when I graduated, uh, you know, almost 30 years ago, I was indirectly streamed to be a professional, mm-hmm. whether it was a lawyer, banker, right. accountant, mm-hmm. etc. And that was the defining term of success. Today, I am seeing a massive shift that um, that the kids that are graduating now want to build their own company or be an entrepreneur. That could be a sole proprietor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be you know building a big business. It doesn't matter. But the 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 most fascinating thing that I think that we're going to see, and we're only a generation away, is that the whole notion of being an employee is going to change, and we will need to be a nation of subcontractors. Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, you know, with this rise of the entrepreneur that we're witnessing, it, you know, it leads me to be extremely optimistic about where we're heading. And I think this is going to be the future wealth creation of this nation. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, you you lead very nicely into one of my mantras, which is I have a firm belief that entrepreneurs are going to save the world. So, uh, so awesome stuff, John. Uh, just great having you on the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is Canada's most powerful person in business. I don't know if that says it on your business card or not, John. <laughs> <laughs> but congratulations, sir. And uh, and again, your insights were very powerful today and I know will be helpful for, for our guests. I'm Rivers Corbett and you are listening to the Startup Canada podcast show. Startup Canada is your doorway into Canada's entrepreneurship community. Be sure to check out the website startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like the popular startup chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Time where expert guests answer your questions. Visit startupcan.ca backslash events to see our upcoming guests and topics. And if you want to check out what I'm up to, you can follow me on my through my website www.riverscorbett.ca Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Rivers Corbett and have an incredible enterprising week.